One of the leading causes of death worldwide each year is the flu virus. Each year, millions are infected. Between 250,000 to 500,000 people die from it, or at least with it. We've learned a lot about viruses since COVID. Some people with strong immune systems and no underlying conditions, they can get COVID or the flu and never even know it. But others with weakened immune systems or underlying conditions can get these viruses and die from them. Some strains can prove extra deadly. hundred years ago, the Spanish flu of 1918 claimed 50 to 100 million lives. It is amazing to think how something so small can prove so deadly and avoid eradication. In the ancient world, before advances in biology, they did not understand the cause or the workings of the flu. They didn't know it was a virus. They didn't even know what a virus was. They, they thought flu outbreaks were uh, to coincide with astrological events, the stars. But especially with the development of the microscope, the flu virus began to be understood at a cellular level. Scientists started to figure out how the virus attacked the body, how it multiplied, spread, how the body defends itself against it. And that knowledge proved to be invaluable in uh, both preventing infection and fighting it off. And now we know that getting the flu is not the result of your zodiac sign. Just frequently wash your hands, steer clear of the infected, promote a healthy immune system, you'll probably be fine. But from the flu to COVID to any disease, the point is the same. That the better you know and understand how a disease works, how it spreads, how it harms us, the better you'll be able to both fight it off and prevent it in the first place. And so it goes with the disease of sin. In many respects, sin can be likened to a deadly virus. Not a perfect analogy. We are culpable for sin. But in a manner of speaking, we're all infected with sin. It comes to take on a life of its own and its host, We're born infected, and then it quickly multiplies within us. It affects us, harms us, uh, our body and soul, makes us suffer. Worse yet, sin claims the lives of millions of people each year, leading to an eternal death. We worry a lot about keeping our bodies free from disease, that we should be worried about our soul all the more. But what can we do to rid ourselves of this disease, this sin problem? Well, as with the disease, it holds true with sin that the better you understand how it works, how it spreads, how uh, to stop it, the better you can deal with it. And that's been our aim with this study series, again, titled Winning the War Against Sin. For several lessons, we've been studying, you might say, the pathology of sin. What is it? How does it work within us before, after salvation? We've covered that. And being equipped with this knowledge, we can now effectively form a, a battle plan, a strategy that's effective in both fighting it off and also preventing it in the first place. Thankfully, sin can no longer kill us eternally. Left to ourselves, the sin problem is incurable. We have no hope to overcome sin. But the good news is God sent his son, Christ Jesus, to come to the world, die on the cross, rise from the dead to be that cure for sin. Now those who wash in the blood of Jesus, get, get that transfusion from Jesus, uh, can be forgiven. It's only Christ who can cure us, our sin problem, by grace. And we receive that by faith. By faith, Jesus frees us right now from sin's penalty and power. But until glorification, we must still contend with sin's presence. Though victorious over sin in Christ, it, it's still in our system. 
It's still part of us somewhere. It can no longer kill us eternally, but it can still affect us and afflict us. It can hinder our worship, our witness, our walk. And the three main things God wants us to do after salvation, sin messes with. But God has commanded us to fight against our sin, and he's given us the power to do so. And much like a virus, the best means of dealing with sin and preventing it is fostering a strong, healthy, spiritual immune system. God has made us alive on the inside and filled us with his spirit to do just that. And as you walk by his spirit, your new self in Christ will naturally put off sin and stay away from it. What that looks like, though, and how we actually do that, that's our aim to nail down tonight. We're back today for our fifth lesson. We've come a long way, but I think we're finally ready to put all the puzzle pieces together. I trust that by the end of tonight's lesson, you'll start to have that practical implementation you need to to wage war against sin in your own sanctification. You'll know what you need to do to grow, to overcome. So we're going to talk battle plans. Now, I do want to say before we get there, I think we need to order up one more quick dose of recap. And these lessons have all been cumulative. They've all intentionally been building on one another leading up to, well, this point. But I think the implementation we're going to learn tonight will, will hit harder and be more impactful if its foundation is fresh in our minds. So well, let's quickly do a, a recap of where we've been in, in short order. We've been studying lately at one key verse, Galatians 5.16, which holds, the, pro, holds uh, the promise of what we're after. Namely, walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. At salvation, we're made new on the inside. We're given new hearts. These hearts come with new desires for righteousness. But our outer man remains unchanged. Our bodies are still sin-cursed. They contain within them the sinful flesh. Our flesh has its own lusts, which are oriented away from God and towards sin. And so as a result, there are now two sets of desires within us. Those of the spirit, those of the flesh. And they're, they're in opposition to one another. This is Galatians 5.17, which says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. And we learn that if you give in to the desires of the flesh, you, you get the deeds of the flesh. It's Galatians 5.19 and following. But if you give in to the desires of the spirit, you, you get the fruit, the deeds, or the fruit of the spirit. That's Galatians 5.22 and following. All our sins come from these lusts or pleasures that wage war within us. And, and it is a war. You do the things you want to do because, or rather I should say, you do what you do because you want to. God made us creatures of desire. We always act according to our strongest desire. And now these two sets of desires constantly war within us for dominion. First Peter 2.11 it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. It's a war. And we're being told to abstain from these fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Again, these sinful lusts of the flesh, they don't go away at salvation, but thankfully we're no longer enslaved to them. They're no longer our master. We're freed from them. We can and must deny them, abstain from them, 1 Peter 2.11. Another key verse, we studied Romans 6, 11, and 12. 
It says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. This is now the situation we find ourselves after justification and before glorification. With our new minds, we serve the law of God, but with our old flesh, we serve the law of sin. That's Romans 7. But God has not left us to contend with this tug of war alone. He has given us a secret weapon, the Holy Spirit, as Romans 8. Now we're to be led by the Spirit to grow, Romans 8, 14. By the Spirit, we are to put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13. This is what Paul has in mind in Galatians 5 when he tells us to walk by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit when we are being led by the Spirit, and that is a function of desire. More specifically, we learned that the spirit within us now works to reshape our desires. And as we submit to the spirit's leading, he renews us in the inner man, strengthens our desires for righteousness, such that now we do what is right because we we generally want to. We want to more than our flesh wants to do otherwise. Here's a helpful comment from John Piper, which summarizes walking by the spirit, quote, Walking by the Spirit is what we do when the desires produced by the Spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. Walking by the Spirit is something the Holy Spirit enables us to do by producing in us strong desires that accord with God's will. End quote. See, ultimately, we don't change or grow just by like hard work or effort. Sanctification is still a sovereign work of God the Spirit. He has to act on us if we are to change But God has given us an active part to play, namely to plug into the Spirit's power. We must avail ourselves of the Spirit's power to reshape our desires from the inside out. And we learned last week, okay, well, how do you do that? And and the succinct answer Scripture gives is to renew the mind. That That the channels of grace to renew us go through the mind. Renew the mind. To quickly reconnect those dots, it was actually the Apostle Paul who first connected those dots. Again, this is Romans 8, for example, 5 and 6, where he says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Many times we've been saying our desires lead to our deeds, but then what what leads to our desires? What impacts or affects our desires? The answer is the mind. You feed your body through your mouth that it might grow, but you feed your new self, your heart, through your mind that it might grow. Where your mind goes, so go your desires. This works in both directions. That if you fill your mind with the things of the flesh, it will incite And entice all of your sinful desires. But if you set your mind on things above, it will feed and strengthen your new desires. And that's what we need. Because it's only when the desires of the the new spirit are stronger than the desires of our old flesh. That we will choose to walk in holiness. So what must we do to grow? What is our, our active part? It is to renew the mind. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth, and as we set our minds on the truth, the Spirit works to strengthen our desires for righteousness. Romans 12, 2 we studied, 
says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is. You see how that command is passive. We're not being told to transform ourselves. We're being commanded to be transformed. It is something the Spirit will do to us. But how do you obey a passive command? There's only one way. It's to put yourself in the path of the Spirit's transforming power. And what is that path? Renew your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the same as Ephesians 4, 22, as we also learned. It says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Verse 24 says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. But, but how you actually do this comes in that middle verse, verse 23, which tells us to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So that's your active role in sanctification, to daily, continually be renewing your mind. This is how you, again, put yourself in the path of the Spirit's power to work in you. Now, I know last week I said we'd leave metaphors behind, but I actually have one more. Because I think it helps just put together how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to grow, to overcome sin. So picture a a corn mill or a wheat mill that's powered by our water wheel next to a river, which I learned recently the ancient Romans actually utilized. You'd have water from a river that would turn a massive water wheel, which is connected to a shaft that in turn turns a large grinding stone or millstone, which would then crush grain or corn into flour. Now, these water wheels themselves, they're made with only one purpose in mind, and that's to do work. But it's obvious these water wheels don't spin themselves. From where do they get all of their power to do work? From the river. They have no power in themselves. The power to do all the work they were made to do comes from the river. No river, no power, no work. And so the river is the real active agent that the water wheel is passive. It is being acted upon by the power of the river. But in another sense, The wheel has one very important job, one very active role. It is to be in the river. If the water wheel is out of the river, if it's lifted out somehow, it now is a worthless water wheel and it will do no work. It will not turn. It has no power. The wheel, pretending it's autonomous, must place itself in the river if it is to turn. In this analogy, you're like the water wheel. Before salvation, you were like a pile of rotting wood, but God saved you. He remade you into this water wheel. You're created for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. God is pleased by our holy Christ-like living. But just as we don't have the power to save ourselves, we actually don't have the power to sanctify ourselves. God does. And thankfully, he has supplied us with this power. He's made a river of power to flow inside of us, namely the Holy Spirit. So all the power we need to deny sin, to bear fruit, it's been given to us. It's within. This does not, though, mean our growth is automatic because God has given us an active responsibility. And that, that is what? It's to walk by the Spirit. Which again, it's to put ourselves in the river of the Spirit's power. 
The Spirit will automatically turn us and reshape our desires for righteousness when we do this. But we have to avail ourselves of the Spirit's means of grace. And as we learned last time, that the Spirit channels grace through the mind into us. It pipes into us through the mind. We must renew the mind. That's our job. All right, we'll leave the recap there. And after all we've studied, we, we end up with this last big practical question. Namely, how do you renew the mind? If this is our active part, if this is our means of, of accessing the Spirit's power, putting ourselves in the path of the Spirit's power, how do we do it? Well, sticking with the river theme, I want you to picture one big river with four substantial tributaries feeding into it. And if you're to soak in these four tributaries, you'll find the spirit at work in you to renew your desires that you might not carry out the lust of the flesh. So I want to give you four ways to renew your mind, to be spirit led. Four ways to renew your mind and be spirit led. The first is God's word. God's word. The first tributary, it's the biggest, it's the main one by which our minds are renewed. We'll spend the most time on it. It's the scriptures. You need to be reading, studying, meditating on, memorizing God's word. Now, I want you to hear me out. Many from maybe a charismatic background have been conditioned to think that that being spirit-filled has nothing to do with the Bible. Being spirit-filled, that's an esoteric you know, ecstatic, mystical experience. It goes above and beyond God's word. It's really like, why do I need to read and study the Bible anymore when I have the spirit? But that is a false dichotomy coming from a failure to understand the relationship between the spirit and the word. The spirit works through his word. Don't forget who inspired the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. And it's the same spirit who daily illumines the scriptures to our minds to renew us. People tend to forget what type of war we're in. This war against sin. What what type of war is this? Yeah, obviously it's not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. But even more specifically, we're in a truth war. The war against sin is a truth war. We don't use real swords and shields. It's because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against Satan. It's against the world he inspires. It's against our own sinful flesh. Therefore, we need what? Ephesians 6 tells us that that armor of God. I trust you're familiar with that. We don't have time to turn there, but we need that armor of God. If you've ever studied that passage, though, Ephesians 6, the armor of God, that's Paul's own metaphor. You realize what this armor represents. And it it just represents truth. Every single piece of this spiritual armor is just another way of describing gospel truth. Satan is the father of what? Lies. How does he deceive the world? Lies. Our flesh subscribes to that now. But put on the armor of God. Pick up the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. That's how you stand firm. We, we need truth. We are fighting a war against ultimately lies and deception internally or externally. You wage war with truth. It's just as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, John 17, 17. He prayed for us, future disciples saying, sanctify them in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. It doesn't get shorter or sweeter than that. 
So we need to be filled with God's word, which the spirit of truth then uses to renew us. That is how we will extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one and overcome temptation. Now let's get into some specific passages. I want you to see this explicitly. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, parallel to the command to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5 is the command to be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5. This is not a command to be indwelt by the Spirit. All believers are fully indwelt by the Spirit at salvation. It's not like we need more of the Spirit. But our part is to put ourselves under more of the Spirit's influence in our lives. That's something we we must do. We can be commanded to do. So Ephesians 5.18, look there. Start with this verse. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now what's interesting in Ephesians 4 through 6, his application, Paul uses the walk metaphor several times to tell us how to walk, how to live, how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We would expect him here then to tell us, based on his walk metaphor, to walk by the Spirit. Why doesn't he say walk by the Spirit? But it's evident the Ephesian church had in their background drunkenness in connection with their pagan origins. And so Paul opts to mix metaphors going from walking by the Spirit to being filled with the Spirit. They're the same thing. This allows Paul to form a contrast with being filled with wine. A little bit better than walking in wine. Being filled with wine versus being filled with the Spirit. His command is, don't be wine-filled, be Spirit-filled. A very simple basic principle emerges from this. What you are filled with controls you. What you are filled with controls you. The word for filled, plerao, comes with this idea of control or domination. And this word informs the relation to drunkenness here, which otherwise seems kind of odd. Like, why is he talking about drunkenness and comparing that with or contrasting that with the spirit? What's up with this? You just have to think, why is drunkenness a sin to God? It's like people just trying to have a good time, right? Why does God care so much? But consistently throughout the scriptures, drunkenness is always regarded as sinful. Why? What's the big deal? Well, the problem with drunkenness in the Bible, and this would apply to mind-altering drugs, is that your mind is no longer in control, which is to say your flesh is now in control. When you're drunk, your flesh is in control. All your inhibitions, all other checks against evil, like your conscience, they're gone. Instead, your, your flesh just hops right into the driver's seat and takes control of you. This is why when people are drunk, they say and do things they would not otherwise say and do. It brings the worst out of them to God. Anytime you are not in control, and especially when your flesh is in control, you're, you're in sin. It's not his will. This is why drunkenness is consistently a sin in scripture. But Instead of being wine-filled, just be spirit-filled. If what you're filled with controls you, well, what, what, what do we want now? We, we don't want to be controlled by the flesh. We want to be controlled by the Spirit. So let us be filled with the Spirit, which is to say, be controlled by the Spirit given to us. Let the Spirit within you lead you. All believers receive the Spirit at salvation and are permanently indwelt, 
You don't need a second filling. You don't need a top up. You don't need a greater filling. That's not what this verse is saying. It's saying be controlled by the spirit you have. I'll put it this way. You know the difference between dwelling and ownership. Some of you own homes, but you don't dwell there. Maybe you rent them out. And someone else dwells there. Practically, it's, it's kind of like their house. The one who dwells in the house really sets the character, the tone, the feeling of the house. But they're not strictly the owner. Well, before salvation, we were owned by sin and Satan and indwelt by sin. For that salvation, Jesus redeems us. He buys the title deed to us. He frees us from slavery to Satan. He puts us under his ownership. That's a good thing. Praise, praise God for that. And Christ also then sends in the Holy Spirit to renovate. And now, now the Holy Spirit is supposed to dwell in the house of our body. He does, leading us to live out the salvation Jesus gave to us. But you know, sin is like a pesky renter. Sin is like a squatter. She keeps trying to get back inside as if he owns the place. And we have the Spirit, but sin still dwells within us and leads us to do wrong. So what we need to do is constantly evict sin and live under the Spirit. Let the Spirit richly dwell within you. That will lead you to right behavior that pleases the Lord. What kind of right behavior are we talking about? What does being Spirit-filled look like when it comes out of you? Well, the next verse is he gives a little sampling. It's not exhaustive, uh, exhaustive, but he gives a little sampling of the type of life that results when you're Spirit-filled. Do not get drunk with wine. That is dissipation. Rather be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking. And three participles give us the explanation of what it looks like to be uh, Spirit-filled. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is what the Spirit-filled believer will look like. They're speaking to one another. They're giving thanks for all things. They're being subject to one another. It's it's what life pleasing to the Lord looks like. Paul goes on from here to further detail what the spirit-filled life looks like. He applies it to wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters. It's what's known as the household code. Now, I bring all this up for a very specific reason. Keep all this in your mind. Keep this passage in your mind. Now flip over to Colossians 3. There's a few books to the right. Colossians 3. As you're turning, you need to know that Ephesians and Colossians are extremely parallel and similar. Paul wrote both of them during his first Roman imprisonment. Likely back to back. They're both written to local churches in uh, the same region. The churches were facing a few dissimilar issues, but otherwise... So much of what Paul says in these two letters is parallel, if not identical. The flow of thought, his counsel, runs largely parallel through Colossians and Ephesians. That's especially the case with the application. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 5. Now, Colossians 3 overall has many verses verses that capture everything we've been learning about in this whole series. Like Colossians 3 verse 1. His application, he says, therefore... If you have been raised up with Christ, really since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, 
not on the things that are on the earth. Verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This should just be affirming of everything we've studied. We really have been raised up to new life in Christ. He's made us new on the inside, but our new self starts off small. Again, like that sapling, it needs to grow, be renewed, to grow up further into the image of the one who made us. So how do we do that? What is our part? Well, I want you to pay attention to the imperative down in verse 16. Colossians 3.16, he goes on to say, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Then he says, With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He goes on, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, uh, through, uh, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, right off the bat, do you notice how extremely parallel that, that those verses are with Ephesians 5.18 and following what we just read? They're almost the same thing. They're almost identical, right? There are enough verbal parallels between these two books and these two specific passages to argue that and Paul's making the same point. Again, verse 16 and following, Paul mentions the exact same results of being spirit-filled as he did in Ephesians 5, Right? Verse 16, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, that's almost identical to that Ephesians 5 passage. And then immediately after this in Colossians, what does Paul talk about? Very next verse, it's the same household code. Wives, husbands, children, Fathers, slaves, masters. It's all the same thing. That's because Paul is making the exact same point to these two churches of Asia Minor. He's telling them how to grow in their salvation and bear fruit. But there's only one critical difference between these two otherwise extremely parallel passages. And what is it? In Ephesians, this all stems from one command. It is to be filled with the Spirit. But here in Colossians, the results are all the same, but it all stems from one central command. Be filled with Christ's word. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. He swaps them out. But here's the point. In Paul's mind, he does that because those two things are interchangeable. To be word-filled is to be spirit-filled. They produce the same results because they're essentially the same thing. And that should make perfect sense because how does the spirit control us by the word of God in our minds. Remember the principle, what fills you controls you. The Bible never teaches this mystical, subjective spirit uh, filling where you just rely on a feeling from the Lord. Our feelings and affections should be involved as a result of walking by the spirit. But, But the point is God has already spoken And he rules our lives by his now written word, the word of Christ. And what's so valuable about Colossians 3.16 then is that it puts in practical terms what we must do. What God expects of us in spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is not about self-effort and moral reform. 
It's about yielding to the power of the Spirit to change our desires from the inside out. And that will happen as we are filled with the word of Christ. That's the water which makes the plant grow. Think about plants. God made all living things to grow by nature. How do you make a plant grow? You don't have that power. It's in its DNA. It's in its nature to grow. It grows automatically. But at the same time, you also know living things need resources. Without water, without light, without air, they can't grow. They can't do what they are programmed to do. It's the same for us. You want the plant to grow? Feed it. You do you want to grow? Eat. You have to be fueled up all times. That, that will ensure growth. And so practically speaking now, how do we grow up into Christ's image and overcome sin? We eat not bread, but the bread of life. This is the food the spirit digests to produce spiritual energy. The same spirit who inspired the word of God now uses the word of God to renew our minds, to change our thinking, to reprogram our desires. All of that automatically changes our behavior, right? All of that, as we're changed and reformed on the inside, what we love and value, our new behavior will flow right out of that automatically. This is John 15, where Jesus said, he's the vine, we're the branches. How do we grow? And bear fruit, he says in verse 5 of John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But the next verse, Jesus clarifies what that means. When he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will grow and bear much fruit. See, the way Jesus abides in us is through his word. That this spirit-inspired word. The word abide really means to dwell, by the way. It's the same as Colossians 3.16. We bear fruit when Christ, through his word, richly dwells in us. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Be spirit-filled. This is like the major reason God gave us the scriptures. He knew we would need the bread of life to be sustained and to grow. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. that The man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word, the scriptures, they're, they're profitable for all things. They're profitable to equip you for every good work. You don't need anything else to be trained in righteousness. That's what it says. It's sufficient for training in righteousness. What else do we need? The Spirit-inspired word is sufficient. It's the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1 who assures us that this word really did come from the Holy Spirit. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Earlier in 2 Peter, though, he says this, 2 Peter 1.3. He says how, how God, um, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. We often quote that verse, assuring ourselves that that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have what we need for life, for godliness. But you ever pay attention to the wording? How does God give us, richly supply us with everything we need for life and godliness? It says, through 
the true knowledge of Christ. AKA, let, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's the supply through, through the knowledge of Christ. We are no longer the natural man of 1 Corinthians 2. That's one who's spiritually dead and cannot understand or apprehend the things of God. But now we're alive. We're of the spirit. And what has been given to us that we might know God and, and walk in his ways. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says the mind of Christ. So we now have the mind of Christ. Where do we find it? We find it in God's word. What does it tell us? Not lies. It, it tells us the truth, that the real truth. What is the definition of right and wrong? But, but far beyond that even, you know, what, what is good? What is lovely? What is valuable? What is beautiful in this world? What is desirable? The world has one definition for all that. It, it's Satan's definition. The Lord has his own definition of all that. It's the right definition. It's found in scripture. And when that definition saturates our minds and and becomes our definition, that's when we value what God values. We desire what God desires. We love what God loves. We hate what God hates. And out of that new worldview, that new belief system, you live, you, you behave, you act according to your desires, which are growing stronger and stronger as you renew your mind. This is how spiritual growth works. You want the one verse summary? My favorite, second, or first Peter chapter two, verse two. It says like, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of God's word so that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. You already have salvation. You're alive, but you're a baby. So long for the pure milk of the word because that's how you grow in respect to your salvation. By it, you grow in respect to salvation. First Peter 2, 2. I mean, how, how simple is that? How clear is that? So with all this in mind now, now you want to talk practical imp- implementation. Let's do that. Let me give you five practical ways to implement this first and greatest means of renewing your mind. That you might be spirit-filled and led. The first is to read your Bible, right? Just read your Bible. Do you want to grow? Read your Bible. Now, this took me five and a half lessons to get to this point. If I started with this lesson one, if I, if you walked in here and I told you at the beginning of this study, how do you overcome sin? How do you win the war against sin? Just read your Bible. You would have either laughed at me or been incredibly frustrated. It wouldn't have made sense. I mean, you've tried reading your Bible before. It's, it's no magic bullet. I can only hope, though, that now you see why reading the word is so special. Kind of like a diet. It's one thing to just give someone a diet plan, like just eat this, don't eat that, do this, don't do that. But it's really when they know why that works, how that works, what that will do to their body, their metabolism. They're equipped with the mechanism of this diet plan that they can embrace it and say, you know, I really should eat this and not this. And now I know I really should do this, not this. It becomes a conviction of their soul, not something someone told them to do. I can tell you to read your Bible all day, but until you realize yourself, I think I really need to read my Bible because it's how my mind is renewed. That's not, it's only then that you will do it. There is nothing magical about reading the biblical text itself. Plenty of secular scholars study the Bible as a profession. They are not sanctified. But it's when you have the mind of Christ. 
when you approach with eyes of faith, when you open not just the Bible, but your heart before the Lord, then all of a sudden the Bible reading turns into soul feeding. This is how spiritual infants get their milk, how spiritual adolescents get their bread, how spiritual adults get their meat. And now that you know how the Spirit uses the Word to empower our righteous desires, which leads to righteous deeds, hopefully now you can start reading the Bible in the right way. Because you you have to, in a sense, read the Bible in the right way. It's good to go through the Bible in a year, for example, you know, one of those little reading checklists. But if you approach Bible reading like a checklist activity, you're doing it the wrong way. In a sense, it's not wrong just to get the, the data, the storyline of the Bible. Okay, that, that's fine. But that's not what we're talking about here. Every time you open the word, you have to be like Mary, sitting at the feet of the Lord, just ready to learn from him, ready to hear from the Lord. He's talking to you. You're not just reading a book. He's talking to you. You have to always open the word devotionally, never reading out of duty or obligation. But you're reading because you've come to seek Christ, your Savior, the one who saved you, the one whom you love. And you do love Christ, don't you? You want to sit under his feet. You want to hear from him. You want the mind of Christ. You want the word of Christ. This is why you're opening the Bible. What should you do if you don't really desire to be in the word? What should you do if you find that you don't really hunger and thirst for the words of life, but you confess to be a believer? I would still tell you to discipline yourself to be in the word daily. And then at the same time, pray that God would hook some jumper cables up to your heart and reinvigorate your affections. And believe it or not, the word itself, I think, has that power to rekindle that flame. Your, your, your passion for the Lord may have died down to some embers. If you're a believer, it cannot go out. If you have some embers still there, but just the discipline of being in the word with a humble prayer, Lord, just reveal yourself to me. Speak to me in your word. He can quickly breathe life, breathe air, and rekindle that flame. That can happen overnight. There's no time limit on that. It can happen as quickly as you repent and seek the Lord in his word. So I would still tell you to discipline yourself to be in the word. And for the rest of you, you know, distractions abound, and our flesh desires most comfort. That's also part of our battle. So you too still must, at times, discipline yourself to be daily, regularly in the word, yet always prayerfully, just with an open heart. Don't just open your Bible. You have to open your heart when you're reading. This is a devotion. Along these lines, secondly, I can add, and not just read the Bible, study the Bible. And here I also, I'm including meditating, meditating on the Bible. Sometimes, scholarly, you're, you're diving deep, but I also mean here, just, just thinking on God's word. You're dwelling on it like a cow. You're ruminating on it. You're chewing it thoroughly. You're meditating on what it means and how you must respond. It's, it's in your mind now. It's bouncing around. Eastern meditation is all about emptying the mind. There's nothing biblical about that. Biblical meditation is all about filling the mind with God's truth, letting it renew your thoughts thinking on it. So you need to think. We're not thinkers anymore. We're vegetables who watch stuff. But you need to think. You open your Bible, read it, and think about it. And discern how does God think? What does God value? 
and just let that confront you, wash over you, change you. This takes time, just like digestion takes time. It's, it's one thing to eat bread. It's another for your body to then digest it, break it down, and give your body energy. It takes a little time. It, w- it will happen. But this is a function of letting the word of Christ just richly dwell within you. You eat a lot. Read, meditate to get the full nutritional value of God's word. Thirdly, we could add memorize the Bible. Memorize the Bible, memorize passages. If the Spirit uses the scriptures to renew our minds, and if we need to wield the sword of the Spirit in spiritual battle, I think I want my sword with me at all times, especially in hot spots, hot, hot battles where I know I'm going to face the enemy. I really need a sword at that point. What would you think of a soldier who left his firearm in the barracks because he thought it's too heavy to carry around? He says, I'll just run back and get it when I really need it. You would think him a fool and he would not last long in battle. But maybe this is why too many Christians lose spiritual battles. They're not equipped with the truth to combat the lusts of their flesh in those hot spots. But you need to be like the psalmist who writes Psalm 119 verses 9 and then verse 11. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. In the verse 11, he says, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. That the word dwell in you permanently, especially memorizing key verses that, that really speak to your sin struggle. These can be like silver bullets, which I found the Spirit has ways of just bringing it to mind in that time of need. I know it's the Spirit because it's not the flesh. The flesh is not going to be calling biblical verses to mind to deny sin in a time of conflict. It's, it's the Spirit. Memorize the Word. Fourthly now, listen to the Bible preached. Listen to the Bible preached. This is another huge one. This could be its own whole lesson. God has placed his power to change us in the word. At the same time, he's also gifted certain men to deliver that word directly to our hearts in just a special way. Right after telling us about the word that's inspired, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that one might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right after that, Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 2, what should you do with that word in a local church context? You should preach it. Preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. But you see in that verse, that's what the word preached does to us in a special way. It, it reproves us. It rebukes us. It exhorts us. It instructs us. We need all of that. It's a shot of God's truth directly to the heart. It's a gourmet meal that gives us what we need for the moment. There's a reason God wanted his people to sit under the preaching of his word when they gather. From the earliest church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching through today. There's a reason for this. Have you ever felt convicted by a sermon and it's led to change in your life? Again, I'm going to stand to reason that's not the flesh. That was the spirit working through the word preached to renew your mind and affect you. So don't neglect your own personal Bible reading. You got to feed yourself. You got to eat. If, if someone only ever ate once a week, one meal a week, that's it. I think they'd live. They wouldn't starve to death per se, but they would be weak. They would be pretty weak on the battlefield. But how many Christians that the only input they get of the word is on Sunday morning? 
And that's it. That's the only time they're really being fed. But that's good. That, that's great for Sunday. And they'll, they'll feed them for a little while. But you got a whole other week. And they're, they're, they're going to be weak. You need to be feeding yourself daily. But at the same time, come Sundays for a meal to encourage you. And beyond Sundays, practically listen to lots of sermons. The people I know who've, they've just got a little bug in them. It started and they just get on this, I don't know, binge of listening to sermons. I always see them grow. I don't know. I can't explain it. Actually, I can't explain it. But don't, don't change, sort change your, your Sunday morning regular messages. But in addition, throughout the week, I mean, substitute whatever other things you're listening to with good preaching. I mean, if you have a commute, if you have house chores, and I'm doing yard work, pop in some earbuds. I mean, it's a perfect way to redeem the time. It's never been easier to access sermons. This is one extra means of grace that did not exist 100 years ago. We are privileged in this. Add this to your routine. See how God changes your thinking. You can also add here in this fourth point, uh, Christian literature. It's kind of a subset here. To, to read Christian literature, thoroughly biblical books. They're kind of like written sermons. So read them. Reading excellent scripture-based Christian books can be another means of renewing the mind. It's where you're just benefiting from sitting under the teaching of one who has sat under the word for a long time. He's been reading, studying, meditating for a long time, and he's, he's now feeding you in written format. That's fantastic. This too can have great effect in changing you. How many challenging, edifying Christian books did you read in the last year? And whatever your number is, double it and try again. If your number is zero, add 10. Just start there. And fifthly now, we'll say pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. This might just be the consequence of doing all the above, but as you read, study, memorize, and listen to the word, Actively turn its thoughts and prayers into your own thoughts and prayers. Lift your devotional time from merely reading words on the page to you're talking to God. This is just an active two-way communication. You're hearing from him and his word and you're, you're talking right back in prayer. It's as if you're fellowshipping with the Lord because you are. Prayer is our response to being impacted by God and his word as well as our means of seeking help. So you can be sure that prayer itself it's going to be a means of renewing the mind. In fact, let's just make this number two. Because it is number two. The second tributary by which we're filled with the Spirit's power is prayer. Let's go into number two now. First, God's word. The biggest uh, for obvious reasons. Second though, a, a close runner-up if we can really make that comparison. But prayer. In salvation, God has given us the great privilege of prayer. Prayer is a major means of grace by which we find help in a time of need. That critical verse, Hebrews 4, 16, says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God stands ready to deliver his people. That includes delivering them from temptation and the snare of the evil one, the lust of their flesh. What did we recently learn on Sunday mornings from the Lord's Prayer? How ought we to pray? Lord, deliver us from the evil one. Do not lead us into temptation. We are to continually seek the Lord for strength against temptation. 
that we might not falter but walk in the light. We, we must pray. We overcome by faith. Prayer is both an expression of our faith and also a means of growing in our faith. But as Jesus also taught, for some of you, you might not have because you do not ask. You do not have that spiritual growth you desire because you're, you're not asking. You're not praying. What sins are you currently wrestling with? How are you being tempted the most and then falling? Where do you stumble the most? And now I can ask, how much time have you been spending praying about that thing, that temptation? Lord, deliver me from that temptation. Help me find the way of escape. Snatch me from the evil one. If your answer is zero time, do you think that might have something to do with why you keep stumbling and find no victory? Yeah, I'd say so. As we learned not long ago, again, in the Lord's Prayer, But remember what Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was facing his hour of temptation. Matthew 26, 41, he told them, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows our weakness. He knows we are going to need help and power to resist temptation, to spiritually grow. He knows we better watch and pray. Like I said, prayer is the chief expression of our faith by which God delivers us. So keep watching and praying. Pray for your spiritual needs. Like I also said, though, prayer prayer is also a means of growing our faith. Prayer itself actually is a means of grace by which our own faith grows. See, when you pray biblically, you are renewing your mind. We've learned a lot about prayer. Prayer is not just listing a bunch of wants and needs before God, but prayer ultimately is praise. You begin with your adoration, your thanksgiving, your uh, praise and worship. And in in so doing, you're to be calling to mind a whole host of truth. And then you're just exalting God for it. His creation, his redemption, his character, his attributes. But that very act allows the truth to wash over our minds once again and inflame our hearts. It's an expression of devotion that works on us at the same time. It's like B.B. Warfield said, quote, What is prayer but the very adjustment of the heart for the influx of grace? End quote. That's fitting. Prayer is like you're calibrating your heart, pointing it to the Lord, opening it up to receive the means of grace he gives. God hears and answers the prayers of his people. And he uses them to shape us at the same time. So just an application, just first pray. We need to be praying. Quantity time, quality time, pray. But also pray less for the comforts of this world. It's not wrong to do so. Just pray less for the comforts of this world. Pray more for your spiritual needs. You're you're fighting against sin. Pray more for that. Pray that God's will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray his revealed will be done more and and chiefly in your life that you are submitting to his revealed will. Pray for help in the fight against sin. Pray to not be led into temptation but delivered from the evil one. Pray and then watch as God sends reinforcements as he answers that prayer. As you find help in a time of need. If you do not have, if you do not ask, you will not have. If you're trying to overcome your sin, you must pray. 
Now, we still have a lot more to cover, but we're done for now. But we're not quite done. There are still two other major tributaries by which we must renew our minds that the Spirit works on us. And I was going to include them in this lesson, but I didn't want to shortchange anything here. I didn't want to shortchange these two remaining ones. They deserve time to be fleshed out and applied. So we're going to save them for next time. We also want to include next time some notes on repentance and mortification and see if we can wrap this whole thing up. So we will come back next week to finish. But already, I want you to know, we've been equipped with the two primary channels by which we, we receive the Spirit's power for growth, the Word and prayer. It's not just pastors who should be devoted to the Word and prayer. Every Christian should be devoted to the Word and prayer. And look, again, I, I know these are the most basic, simple Sunday school answers for the Christian life. Like, how do you grow? Just the Word and prayer. Can it be that simple? It is, but I hope now, but by seeing all the dots connected, you realize it's always been that simple, but now I know how and why it's meant to work. And now you're desperate for it. Your, your desires for the word and prayer have been inflamed that you can't keep living without the word and prayer in your life. I hope your eyes have been opened as to why the word and prayer are, are central and vital to a vibrant, growing Christian life. And so just in reflection, examine the quality and quantity time you spend in the word and prayer. How would you grade yourself? Just talk to your own mind right now. How would you grade yourself? It's just subjective. There's no like standard to go by, but subjectively, how would you grade yourself? And if you don't give yourself an A plus, now just ask, what needs to change? How might you change? What changes do you need to make in your life to give the word and prayer, the quality and quantity time it needs for you to grow, to be renewed. Let that be your, your ultimate application here. Let the spirit convict you by the study of the word. We just did this evening to change, to make some changes all the while asking the Lord for help. Let's that be our takeaway for now as we'll learn more next time. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God, we, we make that our prayer to you this evening that, that you do convict us by your spirit, even now as we, we have studied your word to grow, to change. And, and really above all, the, the real silver bullet here is that we would just be devoted to the word and prayer. We, we, we desperately need the, the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. And we need to be communing with you, both praising and seeking help in a time of need all day long. Yet we are more like Martha than married, more worried and bothered by the, the passing affairs of this life than just being devoted to the Lord. Just as the serpent so easily deceived Eve, so we are too easily led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. But may it not be any longer. We pray for your spirit to fill us, renew us this very evening. That conviction has been wrought in our hearts to, to change. That will be a consequence of the Spirit's work, but a result also of us uh, swimming in the stream. I, I pray we just take to heart what we've learned. We need to be swimming in the Word, swimming in prayer with a, a heart aimed towards you, and, and we will grow. We will be changed and renewed. We thank you for your Word being clear, 
We thank you for your word, equipping us with everything we need for righteousness and for godly living. And may we take this to heart and, and live it out. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.